significant events right, should change the way uh, we live. Right? Significant events should change the way we do our things. Uh, in 1989 in England, uh, there was a disaster called the Hillsborough disaster that happened during a football match uh, between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest Football Club at the Hillsborough Stadium. Uh, this what happened. What happened was that 96 people died and more than 700 was injured uh, because of human crush. Uh, at the beginning of the match, there were too many people trying to rush into one small standing area where it was fenced up. Uh, there were so many, many people pushing from the back all the way to the barrier uh, that, that the fence barrier could not take the weight at all. And then disaster happened. The, the fence fell and caused hundreds of fans to fall on each other. And that caused a massive num amount of death. This incident remains one of the worst disasters in the football history of England. Uh, because of this incident, from then on, standing areas are banned in all the major stadiums in England. Uh, all football fans must have an allocated seat. Right? They are not to stand uh, in the area. They will show that the number of, of people in a, specific, uh, in a particular area can be controlled and safety uh, can be kept. So we see that the Hillsborough disaster had caused such a significant event, such a significant change to the football stadium in England, even up to this day. So we see, indeed, the significant event changed the way things are done. And so in our Luke passage today in chapter 9, there is also a significant event that should change the way Jesus' disciples live their lives. And we shall see that later. But as we see, the difference is that the event has not yet happened at the time of Luke chapter 9. And the disciples were still struggling to understand what this event is really about. So let's go to our passage today. Uh, they start with verse 37. It says, On the next day, when they come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Jesus and his three disciples, Peter, John, and James, were at the mountain the day before. At the mountain, they witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, which we have looked at last week. And now when they come down from the mountain, a great, a great crowd came to see Jesus. And among the crowd, there was a man. The man cried out to Jesus, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. This man was very distressed because his one and only child, a son, was in great trouble. He said to Jesus, A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Here we see that the child was suffering from a condition that involves convulsion and foaming at the mouth. Because of these conditions, it causes Bible scholars to identify this as a kind of epilepsy. But more importantly, uh, we know from this passage that this condition is caused by the spirit who sees the boy. Uh, in verse 42, we see that this spirit is called a demon, and Jesus addressed it as the unclean spirit. So this man continued to say to Jesus, he said in verse 40, I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Apparently, this man, before this man approached Jesus, he already asked Jesus' disciples to cast out the demons. Uh, who are these disciples, you may ask? Uh, these disciples were most likely the other nine disciples of Jesus. They did not follow Jesus up to the mountain. 
Remember, out of the 12 disciples that are closest to Jesus, only three went up to the mountain, and the rest stayed behind. And so we have to understand that these nine disciples, the closest disciples of Jesus, they tried. They tried to cast out the demons, but they failed to do so. We know they have tried, but they failed because the men said they could not. Didn't it? The men didn't say they would not. And because Jesus knew that the disciples couldn't do it, this was his reply. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? You may wonder, who was Jesus referring to? Who was he referring to as a faithless and twisted generation? Was it the man to us? Was it the disciples or all of them, the crowd uh, who is in front of him? Well, the obvious candidate was the disciples of Jesus who could not cast out the demon. Because we see in the previous verse, they were being singled out. They stand out as the one who is lacking the ability to cast out the demons. The disciples are condemned as faithless, meaning they have no faith. And if we go to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we see the same incident was being recorded. And Jesus said that it was the lack of faith of the disciples. There was a reason for their failure to cast out the demon. At this point, you may ask, how was it that their lack of faith or faithlessness caused them not able to cast out the demons? And you may wonder, why, why are they being rebuked so strongly by Jesus? Uh, if you go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 1, uh, we read that Jesus had already called the twelve together. And what did he do? He gave them authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And then as we read on, we see in chapter 9, verse 6, that these disciples, after being given the authority, they went everywhere and healing everywhere meaning that they had cast out demons and healed others everywhere they went. Therefore, the disciples had successfully cast out demons before because Jesus had given them authority. But why? Why can't they do it now? Interestingly, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, they with the same incident. After this incident, the disciples asked Jesus why they could not cast out the demons. What did Jesus say in Mark? Jesus said, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. See, by that statement, this kind can only be driven out by prayer, Jesus was implying that they did not pray when they do so, when they sought to cast out the demons. That is why they fell. See, when Jesus said that they must pray, he did not mean that, you know, he might, they must say some magical words or some chanting to cast out demons, right? It is not like the disciples have to make some special chanting or special gestures like those Chinese priests, right, uh, in the Chinese, in the ghost movie. Have you seen those movies? The Chinese priests will actually do, you know, do this. They say, ting ling ling, ting ling ling, or they go, amitofo, whoop, to subdue the ghost. Was it what Jesus was meant, but you have to pray? Now, of course not. Of course not. When Jesus said that they did not pray, Jesus meant that they did not trust God. They did not trust and depend on God's power to cast out the demons. Why? Because praying, because praying is praying to God and it's an act of dependence on God himself. You see, when Jesus gave them the authority to do so back in chapter 9, verse 1, and they were successful, they must have gradually presumed that they have now the power to do so in and through themselves and not merely as an agent of Jesus' authority. Therefore, they do not pray because they cease to, to rely fully on God's power to cast out the demons. And this understanding of, of having no prayer in Mark helps us to understand the comment about lack of faith in Matthew. See, they were lacking of, 
they were lacking in faith and couldn't do it, not because their faith is not strong enough, because they have the wrong kind of faith, isn't it? Jesus gave them authority, and so they have faith in their own power after that, rather than having continual faith in God as the only true source of their authority. Now we know the incident, we kind of understand it a bit more, but what are we to learn from this incident? Well, the first thing we learn is that Jesus was much more powerful than the works of the demonic forces. We see here, Jesus spoke a word, just spoke a word, and the unclean spirit came out. Jesus was so different from the disciples who couldn't do it. Uh, in Luke 40, in, in verse 43, Luke wrote that all of them were astonished when they see this. They were astonished at the majesty of God shown through Jesus. And therefore, what we should learn is that the disciples ought to fully trust in Jesus' power alone because Jesus has come to destroy the power of Satan. But as we seek to apply this passage further, as we seek to think about what it means to us now, does it mean that we should then go out and cast out demons and heal various kinds of diseases, illnesses as a sign that we properly trust in God? Maybe some of you already have this question in your mind as you think about what it meant to us now. Well, the answer is, is no. It's a short and simple answer. It's no, of course, you are not to expect that. Uh, but why? Uh, the explanation will be a bit longer, uh, so please follow me as I seek to address that uh, in point 1C of your outline. And under there, there will be some Bible passages for your references as I go through them. Well, I say that we do not need to cast out demons and heal innocents everywhere because physical illnesses is not the worst attack of Satan on us. Because physical illness is not the worst attack of, of Satan on us. There is something worse than physical illnesses, something worse than even death itself, and that is eternal judgment from God. We will receive eternal judgment because of our sin and rebellion against God. And physical illnesses and death is just a foreshadow of the greater eternal judgment that is to come. I see, because of eternal condemnation that is resulted from our sin, therefore the greatest attack of Satan is not physically. His greatest attack is to cause us to keep sinning against God and thus dragging down us together with him, being condemned by God eternally for rebellion. And this, this understanding match with how Luke progresses. Because if you go towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the main command from Jesus to his disciples as he was leaving them was not to cast out demons and heal people physically. His main command for them as he left them to do his ministry was to command them to preach the forgiveness of sins through his own death. This is what he says in Luke 24, verse 26, 46. I'll read for you. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Jesus' death will bring us forgiveness of sins, and that will nullify the attack of Satan in tempting us to sin. See, Satan could no longer accuse our sins before God because the gospel of death, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection has defeated Satan's power on us. However, Satan does not give up. Satan does not give up even when the the gospel went out. He continues to attack us. How? He does so by tempting us to give up our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tempts us to give up our faith, sometimes through persecutions, 
sometimes through temptations of this world. And this is the most dangerous attack of Satan that is on us Christians now. And this is what we found in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In the book, Paul told the Thessalonians that he feared, he feared the tempter, Satan, had tempted them to give out their faith. That is his biggest fear for the Christians there. He feared that if they were to give out their faith because of Satan's tempting, then Paul's labor in preaching the gospel to them would be in vain. Therefore, we see that the attack of Satan in tempting us to lose faith in Jesus is much more threatening than merely causing us to fall sick or to suffer physically. And because of those two things that I said, God will sometimes continue to let us suffer the physical attack, suffer physical illnesses, even the physical attack of Satan, as long as we don't lose our faith in Jesus. How can I say that? Because we see it in the book of 2 Corinthians. We see what Paul said to God. Paul said that there was a thorn in his flesh, and this thorn is a messenger of Satan to harass him. This physical ailment is a messenger of Satan to cause him problem. And he pleaded three times for God to take it away. But God did not take it away, but told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. So we see that obviously Paul trusted God fully, but God did not nullify the physical attack of Satan. But what he did importantly was enable Paul to remain faithful in Jesus Christ. And that is most important. This is what we can summarize so far as we seek to apply this passage to us, is that if we have proper faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then we do not have to worry about any attack of Satan because Satan will not be able to tempt us and will obtain eternal salvation from God. And this is exactly what Peter said in the book of 1 Peter. He said we can resist the devil. We ourselves can resist the devil. How? Simply by remaining firm in our faith. Therefore, how do we apply this incident in Luke 9 to us now? Well, we do not need to cast out demons and heal innocents. What we should do instead is to bring eternal salvation to people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here, the victory of Jesus over demonic force in Luke chapter 9 is pointing towards Jesus' final victory on the cross. And here at this point, uh, there's a further way we can learn. We can learn from the failures of the disciples. Remember, the disciples trust in their own power after they've been given authority to cast out demons rather than continually to trust in God's power. And so in the same way, we can fall into the same danger, isn't it? And thinking of trusting in our own power. Or we can think that it is primarily our communication skills in preaching the gospel, or even our persuasion power, or even our care and love for others that cause people to trust in God and have life. Those are indeed good things that we should do as we seek to preach the gospel. But as we learn from the disciples' failure, we must not forget that true power only comes from God's active and living word. It is only as Holy Spirit causes people to believe the spiritual truth in the Bible uh, that they can have eternal life. So we see already uh, in verses 37 to 43, this incident, it showed that the disciples did not have proper faith in Jesus. And now we're going to move on to the next few verses, uh, from verses 43 to 45. Luke will show us that this incident show that the disciples, do, not only do they have no proper, not only do they have improper faith in Jesus' power, that's not the only failure. In fact, the disciples did not really understand what has Jesus came to do. Uh, in the next few verses, it was shown that the disciples did not understand at all 
what exactly was Jesus' mission, what it meant for them to follow him. In verse 43b, it says, While they were all marveling at everything that Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 44, Let this word sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the second time that Jesus has told his disciples about his subsequent death on the cross. But the disciples did not understand this saying at all. They did not understand and they were afraid to ask Jesus, as this we, we read in verse 45. Uh, when he says that they do not understand, it doesn't mean that they were, they were so dumb as they could not understand Jesus' word at all, as if Jesus was speaking a different language. No, mostly they heard Jesus' word, mostly they know the surface meaning. Mostly they knew that Jesus was talking about his death in the future. But they could not understand. What they could not understand was that how could Jesus, as a great saviour sent by God, the one who has shown great power in healing and casting out demons, how could this Jesus would die in this way? What they could not understand is in what way is the death of Jesus fit into his mission as a promised one sent by God? You see, the disciples must have thought that for Jesus to be glorious and great, as God's chosen one, he could not possibly suffer such a death. And because they could not understand what was talking about, then he went on. They went on to talk about something else, something else that they could understand. In verse, in verse 46, we go to verse 46. Luke told us that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. The disciples argued with each other about who was the greatest. Probably this happened because maybe Peter, John, and James were bragging about their superiority as they were the only three that went up to the mountain and not the rest. Maybe they started arguing about who was the greatest. Don't you find it a very sad irony? Jesus tried to tell them that, they are not, that he was not the typical savior and great leader that they would expect. He would die in the hand of men. See, the disciples, not, having not understood what Jesus said and have, having not, not wanted to ask more from Jesus, they went on to talk about who will be the greatest. How irony is that, isn't it? Probably they were still dreaming about that Jesus will be the great leader and savior. They will lead them to great victory over their military enemies and establish a kingdom for them. And so they were fighting for the highest position when that comes. Not only were the disciples very obtuse and dull, you may also think that the disciples are quite childish, isn't it? Quite childish in arguing about it. As if it's like the, you know, they are like the primary school children arguing about who has the most powerful magic card you know, among them. Trying to, to argue by arguing who is the greatest. We might find this childish by reading this. But the truth is that many of us are just like the disciples. We are just like them, even though we don't argue about it. You see, the disciples compare among themselves as to who are the greatest. They try to be great by comparing themselves with others. And many of us are like them as well. We want to feel great by comparing ourselves with others. We only feel that we are great when we know that we are more capable, when we think that we have more money, when we are more well-known than those around us. But how did Jesus respond to this, to this attitude? In verse 47, Luke told us that Jesus knew. Jesus knew the reasoning of their heart. Jesus knew their motivation. And so he took a child and put him by his side. Uh, back in the days of Jesus, children was looked upon with disdain, right? Especially among the Jewish people. Nobody liked the children. 
For example, there's a writing among Judaism. They say there are four things, right? There are four things that destroy a man. Uh, the first thing is morning sleep. Second thing is midday wine. Third thing is loitering at common places. And fourth thing is chatting with a children, with a child, right? Chatting with a child destroys a man, like a like a midday wine and morning sleep destroys a man. That is how they consider a child. They are the lowest in the society. No one would care about them. And so Jesus brought a person, right? Brought a person who is considered the lowest in the society next to him. And having done that. He said to the disciples at the end of verse 48, For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Who is this least that is great? The one who is least is referring to the child. Jesus said this child is great. Why? Because Jesus has received him into his sight. So we see that this child is great not because of what he has done or what he has. This child is great because of what Jesus had done to him. The Jesus who had great power and authority has received him. Therefore, this child has become great. And so we see that this is what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples. He says, someone has become great not because of what he himself has done, but what the great Jesus has done for him. Therefore, Jesus is telling them that they do not have to compare themselves with others in order to become great. They do not have to do so because they can all become great if they're all received by Jesus. All of them can be great even though none of them is greater than the other. Right? That is why Jesus says the least among you is great, isn't it? He didn't say the least among you is the greatest. He doesn't have comparison here. He is simply great because Jesus received him. See, the truth is that everyone who is received by God is great and that is true greatness. And we don't have to compare ourselves with others. We do not have to prove to others that we are better or we are doing more in order to feel greatness. We are great not because of what we do. We are great because of what God has done for us in receiving us into his eternal kingdom to enjoy forever. And, and this truth, I think, can be, a, can be a great comfort and relief for us. Often, we, because we attach our worth to what we do, then we become anxious and we become anxious or upset when others seem better than us. Or sometimes we get burned up because we constantly try to do more than others in order to prove ourselves. Jesus' truth about greatness here should liberate us. Should liberate us that we should feel secure as children of God. That our identity is defined by what God has done for us, not so much what we do for God. And there's a second thing that Jesus said in this section. Second thing he said here. And it is in the phrase that we just skipped. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And so Jesus asked the disciples to welcome the child who was the least among them. Jesus says they were to care and serve for this child for the sake of Jesus, which is meant by the phrase, in my name. They were to receive this child in the name of Jesus. Uh, Jesus told the disciples this because the disciples were busy arguing who was the greatest. As they were busy arguing that, naturally, they would only have regard for those who were great among them. Do you think so? They have, no, they have no regard at all for the child who is least. So the disciples, as they were concerned about the wrong thing, seeking to be great among themselves, to be greatest among themselves, they neglected what they should do, which is to care for the least among them. 
and we see that what the disciples had done wrong can also happen to us. I think in many ways, often we are too preoccupied in trying to make ourselves greater than others. We, we spend too much time and effort thinking about what other people would think of us. And thus we neglect what we should do for those around us, which is to care for the least, care for those who need our assistance, care for those who cannot look after themselves. See, the truth is that if we spend less time and energy in worrying about how we will look great in front of others, then we will indeed be liberated and empowered to offer ourselves and to serve the least among us. And this is what we have learned uh, so far. We learned that the disciples were pursuing the wrong kind of greatness, and therefore they failed to care for the least. And I think what we've, what we've seen the failure of these disciples so far is connected to their earlier failure, which is their failure to understand that Jesus needs to suffer and die for the cross, on the cross. How is this two connected? Uh, it was the disciples' failure to understand the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection that causes them to have a wrong understanding of greatness and thus neglect the least. Uh, how is that so? Uh, let me explain. Uh, because Jesus' death and resurrection was for the sake of their sins. It was to make them clean before God. Because no matter how much greatness the disciples could achieve by themselves, they will not meet God's standards of holiness. They will not enter God's kingdom. Therefore, the disciples should understand that no matter what they do by themselves, they can never be great in God's sight. They can never achieve true greatness because they were sinful and unclean before the holy God. They should understand that they could only be great because Jesus died for their sins and received them into his kingdom. This, the disciples did not understand at all. They would not have understood because they did not know that Jesus need, must die for them. Therefore, not having understood the necessity of Jesus' death caused them to have a wrong understanding of greatness. And so we go to the last few two verses, and this section follows. These two verses follow exactly from what we have seen so far. You see, verse 49 to, and 50 is about the failure of the disciples in rejoicing in the mission of Jesus done through others. Right? This section is about their failure to rejoice in the mission of other people done, through, uh, done in the name of Jesus. And this happened because the disciples were trapped in their wrong view of greatness. They could not rejoice in others' work because they were trapped in their wrong view of greatness. And so we see here in verse 49, the apostle John told Jesus that someone, is, someone else is casting out demons in his name. And they tried to stop him. Why? Because he is not part of the group. They follow closely behind Jesus. You see, most likely, like, most likely the disciples were embarrassed were embarrassed as a, as a close disciples of Jesus. They could not cast out the demon of the boy previously. But this man could do it. He's not even part of the traveling group of Jesus. That is why they, they, they sought to stop him. Or they could be thinking that the authority to cast out demons was only given to them, and others should not have it. Either way, the disciples were only thinking about themselves, thinking about their own greatness. They did not think about the benefit of the work, good works, that is done in Jesus' name, done through others. If they truly rejoice at the fact that Jesus has come to liberate them from sin, to show authority over demonic forces, to have victory over Satan, then they will rejoice, isn't it? They will rejoice at this someone else's work in Jesus' name. They will not have care who would have done it as long as it is the mission of Jesus being advanced. That is why Jesus meant by do not stop him 
for the one who is not against you is for you. The one who is not against Jesus is for Jesus, and he's doing Jesus' mission. But obviously, they were too self-centered to properly consider the implication of Jesus' mission on earth. See, the disciples' failure to rejoice at this person's word, therefore, was closely tied with the obsession of their own greatness. Earlier, I said as Christians, uh, we should not seek greatness by comparing ourselves with others. And now here we see that one of the ways that help us not to compare with others is to rejoice at the good works that others have done in the name of God. If you, can, if you can cultivate joy and praise, not just for our own works for God, but we can cultivate joy and praise also for the works that God has done through others, then we're in a good progress, I think, towards getting rid of constant comparison uh, with others. The truth is that if we can truly rejoice in the works of others for God, then we know that we are purely rejoicing in the great mission of God. And we are not just rejoicing in our own little mission, even though that mission is for God. Uh, back in the beginning, uh, I said that a significant event should change the way we do things, like the Hillsborough disaster. In our passage today, we have a significant event that would happen, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we see that the disciples could not accept this event because they have not yet understood its significance. Therefore, we see they have a wrong concept of greatness. And because of that, they do not care for the least. And because of that, they could not rejoice in others' work done for Jesus. Luke shows us where the disciples had failed as those who have not yet been changed by the event of Jesus' death and resurrection. However, we, with the hindsight, we know that after the disciples had witnessed and understood the death and resurrection of Jesus, they were totally transformed by it. The way they lived their lives were changed by the event. They became those who humbled themselves to serve others. They became those who humbled themselves to serve others for the sake of Jesus, even to the point of death. And they rejoiced at the going out of the gospel to the whole world, no matter who was doing it. Therefore, this record of the failure of the disciples before the event of the cross are meant for us to learn from their failures so that we may also be transformed like them who change radically after the event of the cross. We, as those who understood the significance of Jesus' death, we should understand how true greatness is achieved. We should be those who humbly serve the least among us. And more importantly, we should rejoice greatly in others' work for Jesus because the gospel is indeed the only great news for this world. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the great work of Jesus in delivering us from sin and the power of Satan on the cross through his death and resurrection. Uh, we thank you, Father, for this record, uh, for how we see the failure of the disciples having not understood the significance of these events. So, dear Heavenly Father, help us, Father, as those who believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, help us to change our lives, that we are those who know what true greatness means, that we are those who humbly serve others, even the least among us, particularly the least, because they need our help, and pray that we may truly indeed rejoice in the going of the gospel. This we pray in the Son, Jesus' name. Amen.